0: We. Are. We. Are. We. Are. are. Cultivate. 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 We are. Cultivate. An enclosed water slide with a complete loop where riders ended up with bloody noses. A four-wheeled vehicle with a stick that controlled the speed, either extremely slow or described by a park employee, as Death Awaits that went down a concrete and fiberglass track, a freshwater pool with huge waves that required lifeguards to save more than two dozen individuals every single day. Action Park in New Jersey, dubbed Accident Park and Class Action Park by locals, featured everything and was arguably the most dangerous water and amusement park in the US of A. So, with alpine slide burns aplenty, let's take a trip to Action Park. (laughs) hello my fellow weirdos how is everyone i hope everyone is well everyone has had a fantastic week so before we get started a massive shout out to mixology and misdemeanors for gassing me up big time on their episode check the credentials of an injustice collector kobe and Jesse are doing absolute bits on their podcast their pan their banter is great the podcast is so well produced the episode's Are super in-depth, super informative, and they're just an awesome, easy listen that I would recommend to absolutely anyone. So go and listen to Kobe and Jesse at Mixology and Misdemeanors. Also, my friends at Something Sinister 2, I've I've talked about them before, but that they're just fantastic. Honestly, if you don't check them out, you are missing out. So head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or your listening app of choice and check them out because if you don't you're missing out. So I've also got a few people that I want to shout out because I received a few five-star reviews and I'm super stoked. So thank you to Pissy Mashed Potatoes, that username by the way, is phenomenal. And Ashley, Emily, and Lindsay for your five-star reviews. I'm not worthy, but I'm so happy there. You enjoy what I do. I also want to give some love to a new podcast that I've been listening to called Criminomicon. Brooke and Brooke are doing an amazing job with their podcast. It's a true crime podcast. They also talk about cryptoids. They also talk about spooky stuff. It is awesome. Go and listen to them. You can find them on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. They are awesome. And I recently listened to their first episode, which is all about H.H. Holmes, which was fantastic. And I listened to their Cryptoid episode, which was also so, so good. So please go and check them out. They deserve all the love. They're awesome. And yeah, go and give them some love. And lastly, a massive, massive shout out to Critty for sending me a photo of her Horror House sticker that she received the other day. I'm so stoked that you like it. And i got to say, it looks damn good on your laptop. And if you you want a sticker yourself or any other really, really nice merch, please go and check out the merch store. So now onto the matter at hand, Action Park, also known as Traction Park, Class Action Park, Accident Park, and Friction Park, a rite of passage for so many 80s kids. So without further ado, let's dive right in, shall we? And yes, that pun was intended. So the owners of the newly amalgamated Ver- Vernon Valley slash Great Gorge ski region in Vernon Township, New Jersey, Gene Mulverhill and his firm, Great American Recreation, plan to make money during a summer off-season in 1976. They built a 2,700-foot-long alpine slide down one of the steep ski tracks, following in the footsteps of other ski facilities. Mulverhill expanded the park in the summer of 1978, adding two water slides and a go-kart track, and renaming it Vernon Valley Summer Park. On July the 4th that year, Action Park officially opened with, a, with two opening-day promotions – a Dolly Parton impersonator contest and a tobacco juice spitting contest. Why a tobacco juice spitting contest, you ask? Because yeah. New Jersey? I don't know. <laughs> All of my listeners in New Jersey have just stopped listening, unfollowed me. They're going to give me like awful reviews. Do I have any fans in New Jersey? I don't know. <laughs> The next year, the Waterworld area of Action Park was expanded to include more water slides, a small deep water swimming pool, tennis courts and a softball field. Motorworld had been constructed out of swamp lands held by the ski slope across the State Route 94 by 1980. The park's 250 acres combined to construct one of North America's first contemporary water parks. It had grown into a significant attraction with 75 rides, 35 of which were motorized, self controlled rides, and 40 of which were water slides. Andy Mulverhill, later the park's head lifeguard, recalls his father's philosophy in creating Action Park. Gene didn't want to do the same old shit where you just get strapped into something or it twirls you around. He wanted to take the idea of skiing, which was exhilarating because you control the action and transfer it to an amusement park. There's an inherent risk in that, but that's what makes it fun. I'm pretty sure, isn't the saying, you don't feel more alive than when you're close to death or something? Maybe maybe that was his philosophy. Maybe it was like, I'm going to get you close to death, but you're going to feel very alive, which obviously didn't go for the six people that actually did die. So the early to mid-1980s were the most prosperous years for Action Park. The majority of the rides were still open and the park's deadly reputation had yet to emerge. However, two park guests died within a week of each other in 1982, prompting the permanent closure of one attraction. Despite this, a large number of individuals continued to arrive at the park. If you were a kid or a teen in the 1980s, Action Park was a rite of passage for you, after all. Two deaths in the summer of 1984 turned the park's fortunes around, as did the legal and financial issues that resulted from the accompanying lawsuits. During the 1980s, Action Park attracted over a million visitors each year, with up to 12,000 visitors on some of the peak weekends. According to park officials, the injury and mortality rates were statistically insignificant as a result of this. Nonetheless, the director of a local hospital's emergency room noted that on some of the busiest days they received five to ten victims of accident accident park accidents. (laughs) Accident park accidents. (laughs) I didn't even realise I said that. (laughs) And the park eventually bought the township extra ambulances just to keep up with the traffic. Yes, the park had to get the local hospital more ambulances. Madness. (laughs) Madness? Great American Recreation petitioned the Township Committee in September 1991 to place a referendum on the November ballot that would have permitted the operation of Skill and Charts Games at Action Park if it was approved. Only 643 of the 937 signatures on the petition were from registered voters, however, hence why the initiative failed. In the 1990s, the park's attendance began to suffer as a recession early in the decade limited the number of visitors and a few attractions were stopped and destroyed due to costly settlements and rising insurance prices. Great American Recreation operated Vernon Valley slash Great Gorge and Action Park without liability insurance in early 1995. And this is because GAR relied on their own self-insurance as they deemed it more cost-effective to go to court rather than obtain liability insurance. Oh dear. I think I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that I watched I watched a, a Daily Motion like mini sort of documentary on Action Park. Um and Gene, instead of buying insurance, decided to create his own insurance company out of the Cayman Islands and then insure himself. <laughs> because it, you know. Anything that comes out of the Cayman Islands is perfectly legit. In May of 1995, however, they did buy liability insurance from uh, from Avanston Insurance Company to cover Action Park and the skiing facilities. Great American Recreation's financial problems worsened as the year progressed. The first Fidelity Bank, which lent $19 million to Great American Recreation and 15 other related companies had launched a lawsuit against them in an attempt to foreclose on the debt owing to them. Law firms that would do money for services done between 1991 and 1993 also began to file lawsuits. As November neared, GAR works out an agreement with Naramco Capital Corp and the CS First Boston Pradium fund to buy the debt owing to First Fidelity, putting an end to an anticipated foreclosure. The creditors who had taken on JAR's fourteen million dollar debt filed for bankruptcy in February nineteen ninety six. JAR then filed for Chapter eleven bankruptcy bankruptcy protection in March of the following year, but remained optimistic that they would be back on their feet within a year. But The writing was very much on the wall for Traction Park at this point. Action Park developed a website where visitors could obtain information about rides, routes to the park, hotels, and join a lottery for park tickets after the park closed, as usual, on Labor Day in 1996. Great American Recreation remained optimistic as the 1997 summer season neared, despite enormous layoffs at the end of the previous ski season, that Action Park would open on June the 14th as planned. The date, however, was pushed back two weeks and then pushed back again to the middle of July. GAR then announced the end of all activities, including Action Park on June the 25th. And that was the end of Action Park. But not the actual water park. Following the demise of GAR, Pradium Recovery Fund paid $10 million for the Vernon Valley slash Great Gorge Resort, which included Action Park. Angel Projects was tasked with managing the resort by the investment group with a goal of spending $20 million to modernise the ski resort's equipment and trails, as well as reconstruct the water park. Instead, the site was purchased by Canadian resort developer developer IntraWest in February 1998. The Waterworld area of Action Park was renovated and reopened as Mountain Creek Water Park for the 1998 season, but the Motorworld and Alpine Centre sections were removed. The park's Motorworld area remained untouched until at least mid-2000 when work on Mountain Creek's Black Creek Sanctuary began. So that was a bit of history around the birth, the life and the death of Action Park, but not quite the death of the Action Park moniker as we will discuss later. I think it's now time to talk about the three different areas of Action Park and why the park became as notorious as it did. So the first of these areas, or lands, if you wanted to call them that, was the Alpine Centre. The Gladiator Challenge, based on the television series American Gladiators, opened at the Alpine Centre in 1992. It allowed visitors to compete in an obstacle course and jousting bouts against other visitors and park-employed gladiators. The attraction was designed by former bodybuilders Michael and Vince Mancuso, and the employees who would compete in the jousting battles were recruited from local gyms. The matches had the potential to devolve into full-fledged brawls, and on one occasion, a guest who felt that the gladiator he was competing against had been too rough, Hitting, hitting him on the head with the padded end of his uh, pugil stick on several occasions, returned to the attraction with some of his friends in an attempt to exact payback. The gladiator, however, had support of his own and a melee interrupted. In, interrupted? A melee erupted following several involving several dozen individuals. To restore order, the Vernon police had to be called. I just see this guy rock it up with all of his friends and then this massive gym dude is just like, mate, don't even, like, <laughs> don't even. By 1995, the attraction was removed and replaced with a beach volleyball court. So it was also in this area that the infamous Alpine Slide called home. And why was it infamous? Well, let me tell you. The 2,700 foot long alpine slide at Action Park tumbled down the mountain beneath one of the ski area's chairlifts, giving tourists access to the top. Riders rode down the slope in lengthy chutes contracted into the slope on miniature sleds with only a brake slash accelerator control stick. The rides, and especially the sleds, became known for injuring people, on the irregularly maintained vehicles, the stick that was supposed to control the sled speed only had two settings. Extremely slow, or according to one former employee, death awaits. Extremely slow, or death awaits. Fuck it out. The concrete, fibreglass and asbestos chutes through which the sleds went caused major abrasions on riders who took even minor falls. And the problem was further exasperated by guests riding in just their swimsuits. Yes, concrete, fibreglass and asbestos. (laughs) The 1980s, man. What is this time? It was here in 1980 that the park's first fatality occurred when George Larson Jr., a 19-year-old who had previously worked as a ski lift operator at Vernon Valley, was flung off the slide when his car jumped the track and his skull collided with a rock. He died after many days in a coma. Larson was an employee, according to Action Park, and the accident occurred at night and in the rain. They also stated that his death did not need to be notified to state regulators because he was an employee. Larson's mother and brother claimed in the 2020 documentary Class Action Park that this was untrue, accusing Park management of manipulating the story of Larson being an employee to avoid having to disclose the death. Which is an absolute shocker, right? Action Park doing something like that. They're ah, flabbergasted. Employees claimed years later that if state inspectors had checked the site, they would have noticed that the rocks that they had directed direct the park to remove on a previous inspection still remained. Hay bales were placed at the curves to cushion the impact of guests whose sled jumped the course, which was a common occurrence. Despite park management's repeated assurance of its safety, The slide was responsible for the majority of the park's early accidents, injuries, lawsuits and state citations for safety breaches. According to official data, the mountain slide caused 14 fractures and 26 head injuries in 1984 and 1985. Near the alpine slide, Action Park constructed a 70-foot tall, two-station bungee jumping tower in 1991. So, I had to send this next part to, or this next sort of little bit, um, to my manager at work because I I was dying. I I, I just, the sheer, the sheer madness of this, I, I, I just couldn't. I couldn't deal with it. So, Andy Mulverhill, at the order of his older sister, who was then the park's head of public relations, shoved. A television reporter who refused to make the jump off the platform during news media coverage of the ride's opening. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> On live television? Brand. <laughs> this. This fucking park, though. Ah, oh, I can't deal. The tower was then upgraded to four jumping stations the following summer and closed along with the park in 1996. Wow. I, I just… The, that whole thing… oh dearie me. And then this one also made me… How. Um So, the Bailey Ball was an Alpine Centre attraction that was constructed and tested, but was never open to the public. It was made up of a huge foam sphere in which a rider could be fastened before being rolled down. It was intended to be done on a track with PVC pipe outer rails, and one was erected alongside a ski route. However, the designers failed to account for the tendency of PVC pipe to expand when exposed to heat. The ball, with the guy inside testing it, went off the track as a result of the pipe expanding during the initial test with a state inspector present on a hot July day and bounded down the nearby ski slope. It made its way through the parking lot, across Route 94, and into a swamp. The inspector then went without saying a word when it came to a natural stop at the bottom, and park management abandoned the project. All I can picture is the state inspector seeing this ball bounce down a slope, through a parking lot, over a fucking road, and then giving like... A look to like a non existent camera akin to the office, slowly, silently turning around and then walking away. <laughs> also that poor guy in the ball. Man was man just oh that poor that poor guy in the ball. <laughs> oh deary me. This, this park is an absolute riot. A skate park was briefly located near the ski area's ski ski school building, but due to poor construction, it was closed after one season. The pavement that separated the bowls did not always meet at the edges smoothly. Tom Fergus, a a former park employee, was featured in the journal Weird New Jersey as claiming that the skate park was responsible for so many injuries we covered it up with dirt and pretended it never existed hey there friend my name's sarai and i host a spooky casual podcast called freaky af where i tell you stories of conspiracies true crime and of the supernatural so if that's your kind of shiz come check us out i'm sure we'll be great friends you can listen to us on apple podcasts spotify spreaker and a bunch of other places or you can look us up on Twitter and Instagram, we're Freaky AF Pod. That's F R E A K Y A F P O D. Come get spooked, y'all! On the west side of Route ninety four lived the Motor World area of the park. Motorworld featured rides based on motorised vehicles and boats. When the park closed in 1996 and reopened as Mountain Creek in 1998, Motorworld was never restored. It was replaced by a condominium building, a restaurant, and additional parking for the Mountain Creek Ski Resort. Motorworld contained three types of attractions, land rides, watercraft rides, and air rides. The super go-karts allowed visitors to drive around a tiny loop of track at a pace of roughly 20 miles an hour, with governor devices on the carts controlling the speed. However, because it's Action Park, employees at the park were well-versed on how to get around the governors by squeezing tennis balls into them, and they were known to do so for visitors. As a result, a typical small-engine cart ride became an opportunity to play bumper cars at speeds up to 50 miles an hour resulting in numerous injuries due to head-on collisions. The motors on the carts were also neglected and some riders were overtaken by gasoline fumes while driving. On a longer track the Lola cars were small open cockpit race cars. Think you know your Formula 1 or your Indy cars. They were also charged extra to drive and park employees could control their speed resulting in similarly detrimental results for riders. Former employees claim that once Park Management set up a microbrewery nearby for a short time, because what could go wrong? (laughs) What could go wrong by setting up a microbrewery where underage drinking is widely accepted next to an area that has motorised vehicles? Employees would break in, grab the beer and then take the cars out and ride them on Route 94. The battle action tanks were one of the most popular rides in Motor World, with television commercials featuring it prominently. Guests could pay an extra price to enter a chain link fenced area and operate tiny tanks for five minutes at a time. Tennis ball cannons were placed on the tanks allowing riders to shoot at a sensor prominently located on each tank. If hit, the tank would stop working for 15 seconds and other visitors would take advantage of the time to discharge more fire at the incapacitated vehicle. Outside visitors could use less expensive cannons installed on the perimeter barrier. Workers were frequently blasted with tennis balls when they had to enter the cage to respond to a stalled or crashed tank despite regulations against such behaviour. One guest, <laughs> one guest, even placed lighter fluid on the tennis balls and ignited it before firing, earning him an ejection. Imagine just trying to do your job and try to help some some person in a stranded tank, and then a flaming fucking tennis ball is heading straight for you. <laughs> amazing. I mean, it wouldn't be amazing for for the person getting hit by hit by a tennis ball that's on fire, but still. As a result, the attraction had a reputation for being more risky for employees than for customers, making it one of the least popular places to work in the park. It's unclear whether the tank ride resulted in any serious injuries and the area has not been renovated and only a vacant lot remains. The super speedboats were moored in a spool pond known to be plagued with snakes, according to park staff they could travel at 35 to 40 miles an hour around a small island. Despite the fact that, unlike land vehicles, they could not be tampered with to boost their speed, many riders still used them to play bumper boats, and one severely inebriated rider had to be rescued by the accompanying lifeguard after his boat capsized after a collision. Bumper boats were designed to be a safer alternative to the super speed boats, but their motors frequently leaked gasoline necessitating medical attention for at least one rider who got too much of it on his skin. Tall riders' legs were frequently unable to fit on the small boats as well, causing them to hang off the edges and be fractured during during crashes. And now we arrive at Waterworld. Water attractions made up half of the park's attractions and accounted for the greatest share of its casualty count. Mountain Creek Water Park still operates some of the attractions today, just in a way that won't injure you or kill you. Now, Action Park had many, many notorious attractions, but if you know anything about the park, you will know about the Cannonball Loop. And if you don't know about the Cannonball Loop, well, hold on to your butts, because you're going to find out about the Cannonball Loop. Developed in 1983, the Cannonball Loop was an enclosed water slide. This was not uncommon. At the time. The park already featured a few of these rides. However, on the Cannibal Loop, they chose to build a complete loop at the conclusion of the slide, comparable to that of a roller coaster, because... physics. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's physically impossible, isn't it? I mean, it, it didn't go well, the, ca- the, the Cannibal Loop. It did not go well. The resulting slide, again dubbed the Cannibal Loop, was so terrifying that employees claimed they were paid $100 equal to $241 in 2020 to try it out. Fergus, who described himself as one of the idiots who took the offer, said $100 did not buy enough booze to drown out that memory. In 1985, the slide was barely open for a month before being shut down by the state's advisory board on Carnival Amusement Ride Safety which was an unusual step at the time. One worker told a local newspaper that there were too many bloody noses and back injuries from riders. Some early riders returned with body lacerations after the ride was closed to examine what caused them teeth that had fallen out were discovered embedded in the inside walls. Riders were also experiencing up to 9 Gs of force when they travelled through the loop, according to a former Navy physician. Some of the test dummies sent down before the slide opened were alleged to have been dismembered and decapitated, according to Weird New Jersey. In 2019, Andy Mulverhill, who, t- who was Gene Mulverhill's son, confirmed this to the New York Times. He was also the first person to ride the slide once it was completed, and he did so while wearing his full set of ice hockey safety gear if you have to go down a water slide in your full set of ice hockey safety gear and the test dummies that were sent down before it opened came out without heads and were dismembered then oof, i don't know about i don't know about the cannibal loop a rider was also said to have become to become stuck at the top of the loop due to a lack of water pressure Necessitating the installation of a hatch at the bottom of the slope to enable for future extractions. Those that rode the Cannibal Loop reported that more safety precautions were taken than was typical at the park. Riders were weighed, sprayed with cold water, told to take off their jewelry, and were then given additional instructions on how to arrange their bodies to complete the slide. Wait, some semblance of safety being kind of a thing, at least, at Action Park. Over the years, the ride was reopened a few more times. It was open for a few days in the summers of 95 and 96, before being closed permanently due to further injuries. The Cannibal Loop remained visible at the Waterworld entrance for the rest of the park's existence and was taken down soon after the park closed. At the start of Action Park's 1981 season, the Tidal Wave Pool was opened. The pool took the place of the softball fields that had previously occupied the space. The first death occurred here in 1982, and five years years later, another visitor drowned in the wave pool. The number of individuals saved saved from a similar fate by the lifeguards, however, prompted this waterworld attraction to earn its own nickname, The grave pool. The pool was 100 feet by 250 feet with a capacity of 500 to 1,000 people. Waves could reach 40 inches in height and were generated for around 20 minutes at a time with 10 minute breaks. The fact that the pool depth increased near the far end was not always visible, and several people only remembered or realised they couldn't swim when they were in over their heads and the waves were crashing hard. Even those who could swim well were fatigued, which caused people to pack the side of the ladders as the the waves began to break, resulting in numerous accidents. A thousand people in a wave pool? What could go wrong? What could go wrong? Twelve lifeguards were on duty at all times, and on busy weekends they were known to save up to 30 people a day compared to the one or two a regular lifeguard makes in a season at a pool or a lake. One of the lifeguard recalls it was legitimately scary. Mountain Creek has renamed this attraction the High Tide Wave Pool, although the pool has been made much, much shallower. Health and safety, just, just, health and safety gone mad. The kayak experience was a mock whitewater course that agitated the water above with submerged electric fans. The kayaks frequently became stuck or turned over requiring people to exit them to correct the situation. Submerged fans, electricity, water, loose wires. You could, you could probably see where this is going. In 1982, a man died while attempting to return to his kayak when he touched the open wiring of the fans, causing him to go into cardiac arrest. This resulted in the attraction to be permanently shut down. The Tarzan swing was a steel arch suspended over a spring-fed pool by a 20-foot cable. Long lines formed to hang from the beam, swing out over the water and then jump off as the beam reached its maximum height. Park Park goers jumped off of a cushioned area rather than an area over the lake in the park's early years. Some people who let go of the rope as soon as they began swinging would then land on the cushion and then slide or crash into the lake. The beginning position was changed in the mid-1980s so that patrons may begin their journey over the water. Some park-goers would hang on too long, however, and scrape their toes on the far side's pavement. Those who did the swing properly were astonished when they discovered that the water beneath them was extremely cold. It was so cold, in fact, that lifeguards had to rescue those who couldn't swim out of the pool because they were caught off guard by the sudden coldness of the water. In 1984, one man died of of a heart attack after experiencing the swing and being so shocked by the sudden temperature change in the water. Evan Solomon states on his blog that I'll link in the show notes that at least 10% of the people would slip off the swing immediately and nearly land on the rocks below The other 90%, a mix of terrified kids and drunk adults, would vary between attempting attempting backflips and exposing some or all of their genitals. Roaring Rapids was a typical whitewater rafting experience. The park reported shattered femurs, collarbones and noses, as well as dislocated knees and shoulders to the state in 1984. The attraction is still open at Mountain Creek, Riders use a single tube on the left side, which is known as the Gourley. Thunder Run is a double tube rafting excursion on the right side of the river. Waterworld also had the diving cliffs. The Roaring Rapids diving cliffs area was, and still is, built out like a grotto, with various low-intensity activities. One was a pair of diving cliffs above a 16-foot deep pool, one measuring 23 feet and the other 18 feet. The pool below, on the other hand, was not closed off to individuals swimming in or away from the other attractions, because why would they do that? And nothing at water level indicated to swimmers below that anybody might plunge in right next to them or right on top of them. Dealing with the aftermath of those crashes was typically a full time job for the one, yes, the one lifeguard on duty. And that one lifeguard is probably too young drunk or high himself to care or be capable of actually dealing with the aftermath. Non-swimmers would also plunge off the cliffs, unaware of how deep the water below was and would need to be retrieved. According to former employee Tom Fergus, the pool's bottom was finally painted white to make it easier to spot any bodies. The pool into which people leapt is now only used to deposit spent tubes and is no longer used for regular swimming. So while there are far more attractions at Waterworld, and I could go on for hours and hours, I want to talk about the many, many factors that all combined together to make Action Park famous for all the wrong reasons. So let's get started. Accidents at the park were caused by a variety of circumstances, including ride design and construction, visitor and worker and makeup, and lack of government monitoring. Action Park's defenders frequently emphasised that it was, the, and it was one of the country's earliest water parks, pioneering ideas that were later extensively replicated. This meant that guests were riding rides that had not been thoroughly tested in the field. It's possible that the ride designers also lacked physics and engineering knowledge. One attendee recalled they seemed to build rides not knowing how they could work and then let people on them. Great American Recreation was accused of cutting corners to maximize revenues as seen by its legal woes it was accused for example of constructing rides on the cheap only maintaining many of them on a sporadic spari- on a sporadic sporadic on a sporadic basis and failing to upgrade rides to take advantage of late- later safety improvements to its concepts made by other facilities These practices were found in a variety of areas, including customer safety. Despite being unable to secure liability insurance, the park kept a portion of the ski area open in their last year of operation. People employed by Action Park as ride attendants were also underage. Training sessions were held, however, personnel did not always take them seriously. One former employee in in the Class Action Park documentary says that exercises rehearsing the rescue of drowning victims were frequently used as a pretext for hazing. New hires were frequently forced to play the drowning victim and were frequently left in the water to fend for themselves. Most staff were underage, untrained and frequently under the influence of alcohol or drugs with little regard for park laws and safety requirements. Because it was closer and slightly less expensive than Six Flags Great Adventure, Action Park drew a large number of tourists from the New York's metropolitan area's urban neighbourhoods. Many of them were from low-income areas where they had few, if any, opportunity to swim, let alone learn how to do so. According to park officials, the park greatly overestimated these talents, which was a role in many mishaps and drownings. The staff's disregard for many of the park's own laws resulted in in similarly lawless attitude amongst visitors, who preferred the high amount of control they had over their experience. As one class action park interviewee put it, in a world saturated with no, action park became the land of yes. As compensation, those who were harmed were frequently delighted to take complimentary permits for future visits, and accidents were frequently attributed to the riders by park employees. Occasionally, physical alterations occurred between groups of guests or between visitors and employees. On the Colorado River Ride, raft collisions occasionally resulted in fights. Another time, the cots were called over a group of visiting bodybuilders, tossing lifeguards into the pool and prompting the lifeguards to send in reinforcements. Andy Mulvihill also recalls a brawl outside the park over alleged line jumping, which resulted in one participant attempting to flee with an employee being taken home by her mother. The employee afterwards elected not to return to work, which is probably probably a good idea in in retrospect, to be honest. Understandable. (laughs) Understandable. Beer was also offered at many of the park's kiosks, with the drinking age being enforced with about the same laxity as the park's other prohibitions. Many of the injured were drunk, according to the doctors who treated them. Despite receiving numerous citations for safety violations between 1979 and 1986, including allowing minors to operate some rides and failing to report accidents, the park was only fined once, according to an investigation by the New Jersey Herald, Sussex County's main daily newspaper. It was also remarkable in that, with the exception of Action Park, all other amusement parks were punished for first offences. This raised questions as to whether Great American Recreation and the state had a particular relationship. A reporter a Vernon's local weekly newspaper said in Class Action Park that as Sussex County's largest employer, Action Park received special treatment from the township's government some of the state's regulations were ineffective in dealing with the situation. After the drowning in 1987 in the wave pool, it was stated that the state deemed the tidal wave pool to be a pool rather than a, rather, rather than a ride. That meant, the, that meant that Action Park only had to keep the pool clean and make sure licensed lifeguards were on duty according to state laws at the time. So, fatalities. Six people are known to have died directly or indirectly from the attractions at Action Park. I said seven at the end of last week's episode, which obviously was wrong. I thought it was seven, but it's actually six. Sorry, guys. I did a whoopsie. On July the 8th, 1980, as stated earlier, George Larson Jr., a 19-year-old rider on the Alpine slide, was killed when his car jumped the track and his skull collided with a rock. Because a customer's death would have to be reported to the state, Gene Mulverhill told reporters that Larson was an employee. However, Larson had previously worked as a ski lift operator at a neighbouring park, but never worked at Action Park. 15 year old George Lopez drowned at the tidal wave pool on July 24th, 1982. On the kayak experience on August 1st, 1982, a 27-year-old Long Island man jumped out of his kayak to right it. As stated earlier, he stepped on a grate that was either in contact with or came dangerously close to a segment of live wiring for the underwater fans that had become exposed and he received a severe electric shock, sending him into cardiac arrest. Several Several other members of his family were also hurt in the area. He was transferred to a local hospital in Warwick, New York, where he died of shock-induced cardiac arrest later. The park first denied that the electric electric current killed him, claiming that he had no burns on his body. But the coroner countered this by saying that burns are uncommon in water-based electrocution. For the duration of the investigation, the ride was emptied and closed. The extent of the exposed wiring was also disputed. The park claimed it was only a nick, while others claimed it was closer to 8 inches. The state's Labor Department determined that the fan was properly installed and maintained and that no safety laws or amusement ride regulations had been broken. However, it also stated that the 19 ampere electrical current discovered uh, flowing through a ground circuit three days after the incident had the potential to cause bodily harm in certain circumstances. Although the park claimed it had been vindicated, it never reopened the attraction, claiming that people would be too terrified to ride it again. I mean, yeah, probably. (laughs) The shock of the chilly water in the pool under the Tarzan swing is thought to have prompted a fatal heart attack suffered by one visitor in 1984. The water temperature was fifty to sixty degrees Fahrenheit, which was t- which is ten to sixteen degrees Celsius. But other water regions were in the seventy to eighty degrees Fahrenheit or twenty-one to 7 degree, twenty-one to twenty-seven degrees Celsius range, which is more typical of swimming pools. Donald DePass, a twenty-year-old Brooklyn resident, drowned at the tidal wave pool on August twenty-seventh, nineteen eighty-four. Gregory Grandchamps, who was 18 years old at the time, drowned a little under three years later on June the 19th, 1987. So for many Generation X's who grew up in North and Central Jersey, as well as the surrounding areas in New York and Connecticut, Action Park was a cultural touchstone. A popular list of you-know-you're-from-New-Jersey when that circulates in an email begins with You've been seriously injured at Action Park. Some even say that the park is responsible for forcing them to learn some unpleasant life lessons. In 2000, Matthew Callan reflected on Action Park in the following way. Action Park made adults of a generation of tri-state area kids who strolled through its bloodstained gates by teaching us the truth about life. It's not safe. You will get hurt a lot and you'll ride all the way home burnt beyond belief. Chris Gethard, a writer for Weird New Jersey, and the book series that goes with it, agrees, saying, Action Park was a true rite of passage for any New Jerseyan of my generation. When I get to talking about it with other Jerseyans, we share stories as if we were veterans who served in combat together. I suspect that many of us may have come closest to death on some of those rides up in Vernon Valley. I consider it a true shame that future generations will never know the terror of proving their grit at New Jersey's most dangerous amusement park. So in 2014, the name Action Park returned once again. Eugene Mulverhill, the former owner of Great American Recreation and the owner of the nearby Crystal, Crystal Springs Resort, Formed a consortium that bought the entire Mountain Creek ski area and water park in 2010. Starting with the 2014 season, the water pipe's name was changed back to Action Park under new ownership. Like a phoenix, Action Park rose from the ashes and was alive once more, until it wasn't. The pipe's name was returned to Mountain Creek Water Park in 2016 and the Action Park moniker was retired once more. And that brings us to the end of episode 12. What a wild, wild ride. Much like 90% of the attractions at Action Park, really. This park, man, it's insane. The mini dock on Daily Motion, I highly recommend watching that. I'm going to watch the HBO documentary somehow because we don't get HBO here, so I'm, I'm going to have to. Find a, a legal website or probably to download it, but I'm gonna watch it. But yeah, this at uh, this park was something else. Something else. But the real question is: if the action park of the 1980s slash 90s was still open, if action park was open in its purest form, would you go? I would absolutely go. No hesitation. I would get in a time machine if I had to to go back to the 80s and go to Action Park. There's a high chance that I'd come back in a bag or with multiple injuries, but sign me up. (laughs) So next week, we have a very special episode. My first spooky episode, which is gonna be about the Enfield haunting, which happened here in the good old UK. And not only is it special because it's my first spooky episode, but there will be two very special guests joining me too so be sure to join for that. In the meantime you can follow Horror House on Instagram at Twitter at Horror House underscore pod and follow slash like the Facebook page at Horror House Pod. Don't forget to rate and review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and the website and also don't forget to check out the merch store too. So all that's left to say is until next time Stay spooky.